Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Tim Rosen, an actor who's been awfully fun to watch in a string of shows like Lost Girl, Schitt's Creek, Winona Earp, Vagrant Queen, and Surreal Estate, which we've just heard will be returning for a second season on Sci-Fi in the States and Bell Sci-Fi Channel in Canada. His latest feature film, Dakota, cast him as a traumatized Marine bringing a fallen comrade service dog back to his widow and daughter, played by Abby Cornish and Lola Sultan, and getting caught up in their lives. It's available on VOD right now. Tim picked My Own Private Idaho, Gus Van Sant's 1991 drama about two hustlers, narcoleptic Mike, played by River Phoenix, and slumming Scott, played by Keanu Reeves, drifting around the Northwest trying to care for one another in very different ways. Van Sant's follow-up to his relatively conventional drugstore cowboy was a dreamy work of art, mashing up pieces of Shakespeare's Henry IV with a moving study of queer belonging. We'd never really seen anything like it. Here's the nifty part. Tim picked this movie seven years ago when I first invited him onto the podcast. We've been trying to do it ever since. And finally, here we are. I think it was worth the wait. This is someone else's movie. Just because that was the movie that kind of hit with me differently than any other movie had until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also the first time I could unabashedly say, I don't know if it was a man crush, but it was the first time that I saw another guy and I was like, this guy's amazing. Like, I, I want to be this guy. I, I feel like this guy, this guy represents me. Um, it's funny because we were talking about representation before this started, but I hadn't really seen myself on screen either or someone like me until I saw River. And it was in that movie, just that vulnerability that he had and that kind of social awkwardness. And it, it, I was like that. Uh, and I saw that and uh, I was drawn to it immediately. So, um, you know, and then the, 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 the movie itself, other levels of it um we could get into it the love story and everything was was just beautiful for me and i just appreciated the acting and it it was after that where i knew i wanted to be an actor it was after watching that movie um and it it changed everything very kind of changed movies for me and it changed the movies i wanted to watch after then i went down the gus van sant rabbit hole and then it became about you know it made sunday's movie days for me too because I remember nice. I watched it on a Sunday afternoon and then it would become whenever I was alone on a Sunday and I'd go down to the old video store uh, and I'd go get movies. They'd be like the Gus Van Sant quiet movies that I knew no one else was going to want to watch anyway, but I'd watch. Um, so, yeah, it changed literally everything for me. And then that was the first poster I ever got that whatever went on my wall. I never had a poster on my wall before that, but it was uh, it was River and Keanu on the on the motorcycle. Yeah, um, that was the poster I had, you know, for most of my adolescence life in my wall as a teenager. So, uh, and he still got him now. I still got him on my wall now. A friend of mine made me another River Phoenix art piece. Uh, many, it's many beautiful. Years. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to ask, uh, obviously you didn't see it the first time around, right? So how old were you when you saw it? And, and did you see it on like, just catch it on video or cable or how did you find it? Yeah, it was, you know, this, these were difficult times to find movies. <laughs> the people don't know that now. Uh, people <laughs> got the net and all this stuff. Um, it was one of those things where I randomly just, I got to pick the movies. 
Uh, it was that night that I, I was finally allowed to pick it and I just wanted something different that I knew wasn't going to be the normal movie that we took. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and it was that one. And of course, nobody else wanted to watch it. So the next day is when I kind of went down and watched it. Uh, and then I tried to, I wanted to buy it. Uh, and to buy it was impossible. To f- this is pre-DVD. This so I was going to say, yeah, yeah, this is like yeah. when it was a $100 VHS tape, if you yeah, wanted something. Yeah, and try and find it. And I remember everywhere I went, I would go looking for it. If we were on uh, vacation or anywhere we were, my main goal was to try and find that movie. Uh, and I remember I finally found it. We went on a trip uh, with my dad. We drove down to the Carolinas. And I found it in a bin in a Walmart or something or wherever it was in a VHS bin in, uh, in Carolina. And then I had my own copy. And then when I had my own copy, I could do whatever I wanted because I probably rented it from that video. I was the only one renting it, but I probably rented it <laughs> how many bazillion times. Um, I can't, I can't even remember, but I, I rented it all the time. Yeah. I mean, I saw it at TIFF, I guess it must've been in 1991, wow. uh, a press screening in this dinky screening room, 35 millimeter wobbly print. I remember like the audio had a bit of a wobble to it. That's how old the projections uh, setup was. And I had seen, I hadn't seen Malanoche yet, but I had seen Drugstore Cowboy. And so the excitement was there because this was the new film from that guy. Mm-hmm. But Gus Van Sant wasn't Gus Van Sant, you know, Oscar nominated director and, and statesman. Like this is 30 years ago. And it's so hard to imagine. Um, and Keanu Reeves had just been in Point Break that summer, right? Like, Nobody knew he could do this stuff. Um, and, you know, you heard that Gus Van Sant is working with River Phoenix. He's like, oh, that's going to be cool. And so that was the expectation. But watching the film that they made and seeing the sort of almost like Terry Gilliam-esque drift into surrealism and 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 the, the choices he makes where he's just going for absurdity and chaos and, and somehow you have Flea and the guy who made Winter Kills running around doing Chimes at Midnight. Yeah. It's... It's so wild and so unbound. And now looking back, it doesn't look like anything else he did because it's like even Cowgirls Got the Blues was received so badly. I mean, it's not good. It's not Uh nearly as bad as people said it was at the time because now you can sort of see what he's doing. But you can sort of feel that that's where he was at his most liberated. And then the reception to Cowgirls scared him away back into more conventional stuff. But Idaho is just so alive from scene to scene, even though it's something that like plays in kind of a monotone, like this hazy, bleary, disconnected, what is it? Wherever, whatever, have a nice day. Uh, casualness to it because Phoenix's character, because Mike is so out of it all the time. But the more you see him and the more you understand, uh, every time I watch it, I just, it's so sad. And and he is trying so hard, Vincent and Phoenix are trying so hard to show us the the ways that Mike is compensating, right? Like his, his defense mechanism is just to completely shut off, which is such a, a strange and beautiful metaphor for the way he shuts down his trauma. And then you start to see that just the sheer love that comes out of Scott, uh, that, that Reeves is giving back to him. I just, I was sort of stunned at how deep it runs this time through. I, I probably hadn't watched it since the DV, the Blu-ray came out. So that's at least 10 years. And then I just looked at it again last night and it's like, shit, this is even better than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I haven't even seen it for a while, but I still remember every, almost every moment. Um, and it's amazing. You said that because yeah, I thought the same thing and you see it right off the beginning. 
when he first, I'll never forget that scene. He looks at the road. This is my road. It's yeah. like a face, like a fucked up face. And then boom, he falls over. He can't deal. And he just, the narcolepsy hits him. And uh, yeah, same thing. I mean, I even felt the movie. It, it's like, it, it it's choppy. It doesn't look great, which is, I think, kind of the point. It looks sad. Even even in the, the, the you know what I mean the production yeah. design all of it, um, and so when it has those moments of hope and those little moments where Scott and Mike have love, uh, it just it screams for me. It was so obvious and and apparent. Uh, it was almost magical, you know that little scene by the fire. Yeah. Um, it just it really hit me in a way that nothing else had kind of hit me up until that point. I didn't I hadn't seen Point Break. I saw my own private album first. So that must uh, have been my, interesting. Yeah, in my mind, Point Break was years after I finally got to Point Break, where I was like, oh, this guy's that cool. I had no idea he was that cool, you know. Um, yeah, I just remember it. And uh it's funny if it's like my my little brother um as you know, a lot of young brothers do. He kind of looked up to the things that I did. So he he's the only other person that probably watched that video as many times as me. And I could <laughs> still call him. I could call him right now and I'd say, so uh, is that four orders of French fries extra crispy now, Mike? Is that correct now? Yeah, yeah. And we both know that's River in the bathtub um, getting room service of the French fries. So it's, it's funny. It's, 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 it's like this also... It has this special uh, place in my heart with my own brother. Uh, it, the movie just, it will always be super, super special to me. That's lovely. I mean, it's great to have a talisman too. Like when you're coming up and figuring things out, it was it was always horror movies for me because you got the most elaborate directorial moves. It was like, no question I was going to be a film critic because I'm watching Evil Dead 2 at the age of like 18 and going, oh my God, how did he do that with the camera? How do you do that with a, with a physical object? But connecting emotionally I think that came later for me. It was, it wasn't until I started understanding, like, I don't know that I would have even classified Idaho as a gay film, as a queer film, because it's really just a love story. Like it's sort of transcendent. Um, the sex is mechanical in a way that, although I have to admit, I like it's shot by Bruce Weber. The stills are taken by a legitimate genius and mm -hmm. you don't notice it in the moment because it's just, they're photographed in such a way that they stop the movie short to just sort of, taking their bodies mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel gendered. There's no real nudity. You don't see anything other than skin and contact. And it, at a point where, you know, a, a, an experimental film was not getting mainstream releases, let alone a film with the subject matter. It's remarkable that new line just said, do it like, just go for it. Do what you want to do. Oh, you know, I, I've never asked, I've, I've interviewed Van Sant once and we mostly talked about his Psycho remake because I find that absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, but the the process of getting my own private Idaho made had to have been just as complicated because he's got, I think it was two separate screenplays that he'd been working on and Henry IV. He mm -hmm. just decided to hammer them all together and make one thing because he felt that he might not get another shot. And you can feel it, right? Like it's novelistic in that first novel way where somebody, he's already made art, but now he wants to make the thing he wants to make. Mm -hmm. He's just pouring himself into it. And to the point where he almost, like there's there's the integration of home movie footage and the way that the melancholy just sort of hits you sideways. It feels like this wild artistic swing that he's been bracing for. 
and and he finally gets to do it and it's that joy that balances out the sadness of the story to me like the feeling of a man fully in control of his art and he's applying it to this really this really tragic story about people who should be together and can't because one of they're never in the right place at the right time right like mike is ready and scott isn't scott is never ready i don't think mm-hmm. um and and insists he doesn't see it that way but he does you can feel it you can feel the tenderness in reeves performance and the way that he he looks after this this sad little broken boy he's taken under his wing and even when he's off being degenerate he's still looking out for mike like he's mm-hmm. he's he's so gentle and kind and he's so good with the shakespearean dialogue i was I knew Phoenix was great in the film, but I really didn't give Reeves enough credit. And that's on me. Yeah. It's interesting because I learned about all these things after mm-hmm. Shakespeare, Bruce Weber. Then I ended up going down a Bruce Weber rabbit hole and, you know, all that stuff came later. Um, and it's interesting. You said, you know, you didn't think that it was a gay film. I remember when I watched it, I didn't think about that at all. I mean, and this is a time in my life when I'm, you know, discovering myself and all that stuff. But um, I, none of it, I didn't think about it in any of that aspect. I didn't think of it as two guys or two, at least for me, it didn't, none of it read like that. It was just a love story. I understood that. I understand love. I understand what it is to be vulnerable. I, I understood what it is to be held by the person you love and what it means. And that's the safest place in the world. And, and, and um, his loneliness, Mike's loneliness. And, 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 and uh, I just, that's what I got. I didn't, none of the rest of it kind of was even there at that point. It was just this kind of a great time to see a movie like that because you just see the simplest parts of it. Then I got to find out so many cool things later, you know, I didn't even know who flea was. I probably got into the red hot chili peppers later just because of that movie. It was another reason I went down that rabbit hole. Um, yeah. This was, it was such an interesting time because it was, it was just before grunge hit too. Grunge, grunge was not, Grunge wasn't full flat. Like Nirvana hadn't really been on the. I mean, if 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 it was anything, it would have been Bleach. Maybe was out at that time. It definitely wasn't. Never mind. Oh um, no, no! Like they no, shot like, this in 1990. There was it yeah, was, it, it was, hadn't happened yet. Yeah, it hadn't even happened yet. Yeah. So because uh, it was the most grunge movie that wasn't grunge, and 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 it was kind of like it was like this time in my life where, to be honest, I was grunge before grunge was grunge you i was a lonely loner who didn't really talk to some people i played my little guitar you know and and uh, so um it was just one of those things where yeah i can identify with the characters and uh obviously i mean i'm I'm married now and and heterosexual but i didn't identify as any of the things back then i didn't even think about them i just that was what i was drawn to that love story was and i didn't think about it between two men honestly i didn't i didn't even think about it i just knew it was a love story then that's all that mattered to me um no i mean this is this is how it works right like when you find something that speaks to you it doesn't necessarily reveal itself or or everything about itself to you i i just i don't yeah it's it's one of those things where i've never been able to classify exactly how I feel about Van Sant's work because he has the ability to just be as as profound and overwhelming as it gets mm-hmm. and then also just 
undercut it completely. Like he's like a less anarchic John Waters in that he understands the language, but he just wants to play with it. And he wants to, the allegory of an orgasm with a, with a house crashing to the ground. It's ludicrous. It's preposterous, mm -hmm. but it's exactly right. Mm -hmm. and I can picture that, it right now, by the way, that, that whole script. Oh scene. yeah. And yeah. it's five minutes into the movie. Like it's, it, there's no hesitation. This is the kind of film you're about to see. It's going to be silly, but it's also going to be despairing and profound and, and human. And, the the marketing like nobody knew what to do with it nobody had any idea it, it did okay as i understand it but it was one of those films where it's kind of amazing yeah, yeah. in 1991 um when people were still on edge about any kind of queer representation where the aids pandemic is still well underway and mm -hmm. the idea that you can make a film about gay hustlers like that's that's who they are that's what that's what the that's what the milieu of the film is um and not be judgmental and not be and not have any morality sort of intruding on it like the greater morality is that scott betrays his friends by going legit that's that's the greater morality and that's something again it's like um it's like a, watching a band break up in a weird way i mean you, you're mentioning grunge and it's like the clothes are right they do like it does look like that's predicting everything there's a there's a girl in some of the restaurant scenes she's just sort of on the periphery of, of mike and scott's life but she's wearing that tweedy overcoat in every scene over a dress and it's like oh that's where courtney love got it like you just mm -hmm. it's all there it's like this yeah. embryonic thing that's about to explode and he's just making a movie about people in this situation without paying real he gets the details right but he's not paying like it's not important that mm -hmm. this is the world they're in this just is the world they're in we don't need yes. to know the details I but agree. He's laying out the next decade of American culture. Mm -hmm. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about my new Shiny Things newsletter, a weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming show. This week, that odd streaming show is the return of the kids in the hall. I wrote about that and what it means to me, as well as the new releases of The Batman, Robocop, and An American World in London. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. It's me. I'm writing about movies some more. Come check it out. Which which I think is it's it's great that it came out when it did then because I think had he been aware of it, it might have been in there. I, I think with Gus anyway, he would have got around it, but had it been made later at a different time, it could have been because... I find the film itself kind of like River's performance. It's a vulnerable film in the sense that you could pick it apart if you want. You could just take it and 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 look at it one way and say this is ridiculous, like you said. Um, but at the same time, it's it's tragic and it's heartbreaking and it's funny and it's for me, it's it just it's got it all. And I, and I take it for what it is. Yeah, I mean. That's really it, isn't it? It's it's him just showing you an, an open, beating heart, and it's up to us to receive it. You can you can giggle at Udo Kier's mannerisms because, like now, especially he's become uh, uh, like an icon unto himself, and he's cast for for cultish comedy. But he's just somebody who has a very specific way of existing in this world, and because he has money, he gets to dictate things, mm -hmm. and. So we're constantly being made aware of the power structure and the, the balance, you know, like he's driving, it's not his car, it's someone else's car, but he still 
behind the wheel in that early scene. And then later when he comes back, Hans is their ticket to Rome, effectively. And mm-hmm. he's a benefactor, and it's just nothing is ever going to touch him. Like Whatever happens, whatever misunderstanding is, it'll be resolved. He has money. He can pay his way out of it. Um, Scott will have money, and he will be able to buy his way out of trouble, and he eventually his father will pull some strings here and there. But Mike doesn't have any of that, and we're with him, right? Like, mm-hmm. we're constantly aware how little power he has. And that that opening scene where he's wheedling to get another 10 bucks out of the guy behind the bathroom door, and it's practiced and rehearsed, and he drops it the second he gets the cash. He stops pleading and begging. It's a reflex. It's how he moves through the world. And then over the course of the film, not only do we understand why he's living like this, but we understand he never really had another chance. And that's, again, heartbreaking. It's so tragic to watch that scene with James Russo, who I remember at the time, I only kind of recognized him. Oh, he's the guy who gets killed at the beginning of Beverly Hills Cop. Like that's, that's Mikey from Beverly Hills Cop. And it's like, no, this is a deeply broken, deeply tragic. It's a stage performance. It's again, almost Shakespearean, even though the Shakespearean stuff is happening in another quadrant of the movie, Mike is living his own Shakespearean tragedy of rejection and and abuse and, and misery. And Mm -hmm. he doesn't have a fall staff. So no one's taking care of him. Like he doesn't have a Bob. He has this Bob, but yeah. Bob sees him as a satellite. Like he's not getting taken under his wing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And another reason why I was so drawn to the river character is because I definitely didn't grow up affluent in it, in the, in the Scott way. There was no way out for me other than, than kind of, you know, uh, acting was the, the kind of way I was able to make a career for myself. Uh, you know, I, I think I've definitely far exceeded anybody's expectations of me for sure from grade school or high school. That's for sure. Um, just the way we grew up uh, with my father and brothers and, and where we grew up. I mean, at that time I was watching it, I think we had a picnic table in our kitchen for a, for a kitchen table. And my freezer was either taped or not working at that time. And we had hamburger in the backyard frozen in the snow. So it was we, we had a wild time growing up, but it felt a lot like that um of 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 the mikey uh situation which is you know it's another reason i was just drawn to that uh that character and and the portrayal yeah it's amazing we never know what the art is that will speak to us until we see it right until we sit down and turn it on by accident yeah yeah and this is i just i wonder now it's been 31 years uh, which is impossible to imagine to me that uh that this movie doesn't change. This movie is fixed in time. These people still live within it and all of that. And people keep discovering it over and over again. And it's, you know, there are generations of of kids who are just old enough to watch it and stumble across it and be exposed and changed and influenced. Uh And for, for all the barriers to entry in Gus Van Sant's filmography, where, you know, I remember at the time that people were knocking his use of, um, of the, sort of the slow walking country music as, as Lynchian because wild at heart had just come out and maybe, but they're coming at America from such different places. Like mm-hmm. Lynch is a, Lynch is a small town guy. Van Sant is a city guy. He's an art student. He's somebody who is, is consuming the culture in a way that Lynch isn't. Lynch is like sort of creating the, the reference points from his own past and his own memory of television shows from the fifties and sixties. But Van Sant is, 
yeah, he's he's on the wave. Like he's seeing grunge coming and taking pictures of people and saying, I want this to, I want the costumes to look like this. Mm-hmm. And you get this thing, which is like absolutely a snapshot of a time and place in America culturally, but also in American independent film mm-hmm. in a way that other films aren't. And it's like, it's still alive. It still plays, which I was delighted to find and also a little bit surprised. Yeah, I remember even, uh, you know, the last season of Winona. We had, um, oddly enough, this is it's so interesting. I think probably the last person I talked about Winona Earp was uh, an actor by the name of Greg Brick, who also loved that movie at the same time. But then when we did Winona many years later, I got to work with Greg Brick's son, Nicholas. Uh, and I mean, Nick was probably, I don't know, I, I, I don't want to get it wrong, but definitely early 20s, if, uh, when we did Winona. And we were talking about my own private idol and he had, he had watched it. He knew exactly what it was and was talking about kind of the same things and the way it kind of hit with him. And I was like, I just thought it was great that that movie is still out there and touching people in the right way. Uh, and I love it. You know, the independent movie part about it, I think you hit the nail on the head because after I watched, I, like I said, then I started watching more Gus Van Sant movies and Midnight Cowboy um, actually sure. feels to me like more of a mainstream movie than, than my own private idol. It, like it, it, it just my own private. I don't know. It just kind of feels more stripped away. Kind of, I didn't understand even the editing of it and the way it cut. I just didn't get it, but I loved it. It, it was just all kind of just different than anything else I had seen before. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, that's there's something about that movie. Yeah, Midnight Cowboy is pretty square all things yeah. considered, right? Like it's a safe version. Yeah. It's not like it's, it's not that it's not progressive for its time, but it's the safe version of that story. Um, you don't really see anything. You don't really experience anything. You're on the, they talk about the things they do rather than we're, we're in the room in my own private Idaho. We're in the room with people uh, in, in shots that even now feel vaguely daring for like for the present day, let alone for the nineties. Um, and just allowed to, sort of breathe the same air as these characters in a way that Midnight Cowboy never really lets you. Yeah, I would I would say there's a rawness to it um, that I don't think us ever really went back to again. I know he tried to. You could take the shots from Elephant where the kid's walking through the hall and, and it just goes forever and it's you're there and it's too long, uncomfortable, which it's supposed to be mm-hmm. and all those things. But I almost felt like I could feel it being planned and directed and that's the scene. Whereas Idaho, it's, I feel like we're just seeing the moments as a, they don't feel planned to me. They don't feel like shots. They don't feel like anything other than I'm going to invite you into, to watch this little piece of magic. Yeah. We've stumbled on it, right? Like the camera's just there. Even in the scene where the police are chasing Bob's kids through the building, the camera doesn't like it's ducking out of the way of some of the extras, which is great. There's just this sense yeah. that somebody is holding a Bolex and trying not to get hit. There's chaos rolling yeah. around in the frame. And yet the Shakespearean language, right? Like the, the beautiful elegance of everything that's going on from these shabby people. And he finds a way, he finds a tone that accommodates all of it and, and the quiet and the noise and the, the sadness and the joy and everything. It's like it, looking back now, maybe it is his best movie. Like maybe it's his, it, or at least his singular statement of who he is and what he does. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people now would say something like Goodwill Hunting, um, just for the commercial value and, and what Goodwill Hunting was and and stuff. But for me, it will always be Idaho. And you know, looking back now after I've watched it, as opposed to when I was younger, just saw this raw, vulnerable. It's it's also, I mean, it's it's really clever. You know, there is all the messages that I didn't know I was getting when I first watched it that are there. Sure. And, uh, even like you said, with the house, with the orgasm and it's all, you know, uh, and the, and the visual stuff, um, it's all there. It's, 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 it's something. Yeah. Because I do remember it was like, I couldn't wait to go and get, um, drugstore cowboy. So, yeah. So when I went back and, um, and nothing against Midnight Cowboy, but it's not drugs or cowboy. Um, but yeah, when I went back, I remember I didn't have the same feeling. It didn't hit me as hard as 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 Idaho in any way. Um, you know, it's, it's some of his other films. I've, I've definitely I've, I've I've watched a lot of them, um, but nothing nothing ever like like that. But um, to me, a lot of it has to do with River. That was also my river Phoenix experience, because then I went down that hole and um, yeah, that, that changed me. We were talking about this before we started recording. Um, I, I don't know that he gave a better performance. I've seen him be great in a lot of stuff, but there is an aspect of this performance that it doesn't feel like you're watching acting. Like it's just translucent. He he's, he just occupies the same space as Mike, which sounds incredibly pretentious. I know. And he was great in so much. But I watched this last night for the first time in 10 years. And and I there were moments where it's like, who is this? Like, he's great. Who is this guy? I don't know who that is. Like, this actor with Keona Reeves is is occupying all this space. And then, of course, it takes a second. It's like, no, no, no. That's River Phoenix. He's been gone for almost three decades. Um I've seen him in a dozen things and this is still novel. It's something he found something else. Yeah. And this, I mean, this was a time people don't know, like I'm trying to explain there was tiger beat magazine. Yeah. Okay. So this was like, we laugh about it, but that was the culture. It was tiger mm-hmm. beat magazine. Your guys were like Kirk Cameron and like these perfect looking like hair. Everybody's done and just kind of rich uh, you know, everyone was doing good for themselves, characters, and everybody looked good, and they were perfect and pristine. And then this, I watched this movie, and his hair is like, it's like, uh, is anybody doing continuity on his hair? His hair is crazy. His shirt's dirty. He's raw. He's vulnerable. And I was like, this is it. This is this is something. This is this is what I'm here for. This is a this is this makes sense to me. This finally makes sense to me. This is real. This is yeah. the first real thing I've seen. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, you're describing like the Simpsons nailed it with what was it? Non-threatening boy magazine was what they called their version in the, in the late '80s. The thing that Lisa becomes obsessed with with all the Corys, and he just he could have been that guy. Like he had that career for about an hour. Yeah, like, you know, he's in Explorers with Ethan Hawke and and uh, Stand by Me, of course, and and um, Running on Empty, where he's with he's with uh, Little Nikita. The little Nikita running on, and then he did the one in the Mosquito Coast with Harrison Ford. Yeah, and he's always and like he just made a he'd been the young Indiana Jones right like two hours mm-hmm. before, and he had done all of these squeaky clean shiny entertainments and still been great in all of them. Like he was doing stuff that nobody understood, mm-hmm. um, and then he gets to work with Van Sant, who just lets him be, 
mm-hmm. instead of lighting him for his cheekbones or, or I mean, the, the Bruce Weber photographs do have a beauty to them and they're sort of celebrating just what an incredible specimen he was. But Van Sant let him be messy and, and he responded to it, like muttering to himself and wandering around and not meeting the camera and, and just occupying this, this weird place of being the star of the film and seeding charisma to everyone else around him. I like it's alchemical. I don't know how you know you can do that. And I don't know how you can get an actor to do that if you're making your movie. I mean, he must have just built it around him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I don't feel he was doing it in a, in a manufactured or 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 in any way. Um, yeah. Did he feel like he was making this choice to be um, the way he came across uh, in the movie? I mean, he, if if you watch him, there's something special about him. Yeah, all those movies they had that, but they would have been different. All those movies would have been more cookie cutter if it wasn't River in those parts. He still is able to bring that 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 river phoenixness to him, to all the rules. I don't know if you ever saw sneakers. Of course I've seen sneakers. Yeah. So, and fairly recently I mean, too. And and if you see it, I mean, and okay, look, what a, what a cast. Um, but the way they all play it and, and, and it's, you know, it's everybody's great in it, but I've seen this type of acting done a mazillion times. They play it safe in the sense of where they're going to be, but River's character still got something to him that I just don't think any other actor would have brought to any of those parts. Um, yeah. I wonder if it's just that he's not intimidated by everybody else. Cause you know, like it's this huge all-star cast. He knew who they all were. Like he'd worked with yeah. Bonnie before and he still just like, yeah, he's in a corner just talking shit. Like he's just refusing to take any of it seriously. Yeah. He, he just has this, this riverness about him. Yeah, it's remarkable. I wonder, because that was like 1990. So maybe he was already deciding to sort of break away from the, the straight jacketed roles. Like he could have, I mean, he also was beginning to have his own issues, but I think he could have been, uh, he could have been just like a generic A-list kid actor, teen star, 20 year old. Well, yeah, I think, I think, I think, you know, from what I heard, um, he was supposed to be the Christian Slater role in Interview with a Vampire. Um, that's right. Yeah. They shot or they had to reshoot or they had to postpone or something. Um, no, I'm not saying that that was a super mainstream movie, but I mean, you got Tom Cruise at the time and you know, it was in a lot of ways. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting when we first talked, we were talking about uh, the thing called love, which is oddly enough, my second favorite River Phoenix movie. Just because yes, he gets to just, he's, just so wild in that in that movie no one else would have done what he did in that that movie should have been an after school special <laughs> yeah it should have been so safe and and cookie cutter and 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 you just get this performance from him that just almost doesn't fit with the rest of the movie he's so just on the cuffs of like what you just don't know what he's doing I, you just you can't take your eyes off him. You don't know what he's doing. He's so affected by something. There's something that he. There's always like a weight on his shoulders and his characters that I kind of want to take off. That's yeah. the thing that yeah. it is for me with him. I just want to whatever it is. I want to. I want to help him. I want to get rid of that that thing that 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 makes me watch him so much. Yeah, he triggers a sympathy that 
it's immediate. And I always assumed in the thing called love that they were shooting around something because it felt like, I mean, even the way they frame the Bogdanovich frames the, the, the microphone in front of his face. So he can't see him singing and it's, they don't do it with anybody else. It just felt like they were trying to work around whatever was going on with him. And yeah, it breaks my heart that I didn't get to go to the junket. I was invited to the junket and I didn't take it because it seemed like it wasn't going to be much of a movie and my editors weren't interested. So I didn't go. And it's just like, God damn it. I would have at least gotten to, to meet the real guy, to, to, yeah. to see him and, and find out who he really was. And yeah. It's interesting you said that because I know how much he loved music. And you can kind of see in that movie from Dermot Mulroney's performance and singing in the Sandra Bullock character, they were kind of more cookie cutter country music at that time. Mm-hmm. But the River songs had a little something extra to them, a little more heaviness to them. And I know for a fact it was River who brought that. So it's interesting you said maybe they tried to cover some of that up because it seemed like it was a pretty studio safe movie that he went pretty weird with. Yeah, it's just um, that, that wild energy, right? The thing they yeah, couldn't Yeah, which was my favorite part, to be honest, about it. I can see that. I wanted to ask to that end, like, is there anything, because this is the way the podcast always goes, is there anything that you've borrowed or lifted or outright stolen from from Phoenix or from my own private Idaho in your own work? Is there, I, I was trying to figure out, there's some, there's some physical stuff you do in surreal estate that maybe comes close, but just like the, the moments where you're trying to, negotiate with things that aren't there and and the way you hold yourself they feel like the same kind of off balance stuff he's doing but maybe it's just me reading it in now yeah i don't know if it is it's unconscious uh that's for sure it's kind of like uh other than you know i did have a blue pea coat <laughs> navy blue pea coat uh in my teens uh literally because of that uh because of river i mean i just that was what a what what a fashion statement that was. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was one of those things. Like funny, funny enough, it's like people know I'm a huge Silver Surfer fan, so they always ask me, "Oh, would you love to be the Silver Surfer in a movie?" And I always, no, I'm a fan of the movie. I want to go watch it. I want someone else to do it so I could watch. It. But it's the same with River. And I'm too much of a fan of what he did to try and even think I could do what he did in in any way. Um, yeah, no, not not definitely not consciously. That's interesting. I mean, I love the idea that actors don't always know what they're doing on on screen. Like the that doesn't always read to them what we can see with the camera. But yeah, I'm gonna keep watching. I'm gonna keep looking. I'll find something. Oh, I, 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 you, you're gonna be right. Let me know 100. percent I mean, uh, I've watched those this guy in movies uh, my whole life. No, it's good though. The best stuff always seeps through, right? Even if it's not direct, that that you're carrying that with you, that the admiration for him. And, the, and if that's what taught you what you could do, like that's good enough on its own. Yeah. Yeah. My thanks to Tim Rosen, whose new movie Dakota is now available on VOD and on demand. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can find Tim on Twitter at real Tim Rosen, all one word. And you can find my own private Idaho in a really lovely Blu-ray and DVD special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also streaming on Hoopla in the U.S. and available to rent or buy on most VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And remember how I mentioned the kids in the hall are on this week's Shiny Things at shiny-things.ghost.io? Scott Thompson is in that 52-episode package. 
talking about gentlemen prefer blondes. You want to hear that, trust me. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I've had COVID and take my word for it, you don't want it. I'll see you next time.